brothers and sisters, happy Sunday. Sunday. Kinfolk, let us pray. Holy and merciful Creator, you are our guide and our destination. Remind us of our baptism, Lord, and make us whole once again. Amen. About a 160, 170 years ago, uh, after this church was founded, uh, there was a big argument in this country about the disposition of Americans in the South who were suffering under slavery. In the 1850s, uh, this was a critically important time in the destiny of the future of this country. And I think if you're not a student of history, but you're looking for a time period in U.S. history that's particularly fascinating, fraught, uh, and uh, tense, I think you couldn't do better than the 1850s. Remember in 1851, the Supreme Court of the United States authorized the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act. And what this said was that anyone who aided, abetted, or in any way helped an escaped slave get to Canada or anywhere else was guilty of a federal offense, would serve 10 to 20 years in prison. And indeed, in fact, if you suspected that there was a freed slave anywhere in your town or village, you were required under the law to report them to the sheriff, which was known at the time as the slave patrol. Now, that was pretty intense for a lot of northern cities. This law applied to cities just like Grand Rapids, as it did in the south. We were then required to be in league with these southern plantation owners under threat of prison. Now, of course, this led to a lot of political bickering and back and forth. Some who were just middle-of-the-road moderates said, what do we in the North have to do with the slavers' economy in the South? Why is it our responsibility to make sure that they're able to manage their affairs? But the overwhelming majority of people in the North fell into two camps, different today than they were back then. Essentially, they were the conservatives and the liberals. Big fight then, just as it is today. And the conservatives said, just as they do today, we ought to stand astride the tracks of history and stretch our hands out and say, stop. In fact, slavery is bound into the U.S. Constitution and it's irrevocably woven into the fabric of the history of this country. What is it to us, Northerners, to declare that we're right and they're wrong and we should enforce our will upon these Southerners. No, just leave it to them to sort out their own business. And of course you had liberals who had seen with their own eyes the conditions of these poor slaves living in the South, enslaved, working around the clock. And they proposed many, many laws. They passed laws that said things like, you have to feed your slaves three times a day. You can't work your slaves more than 16 hours in one day. And the most important law that the liberals attempted to get passed, but failed, was that you can no longer break up slave families. In other words, you can't take a child from their parents and then sell them to a different plantation. You can't break up married couples and sell them to different plantations. And you can't do so as a form of punishment. This was a very important law that the liberals wanted to get passed, but it was controversial and they were unable to get it passed because doing so would have been admitting that slaves had families. And this was seen as a, a bridge too far. And this bickering and back and forth they went. 
But the whole time there was this very tiny group way out there in the political wilderness, and they were called the radicals, and they said, slavery shouldn't exist in the first place. This is insanity. Why are we bickering about how we ought to treat them or feed them or whatever? Break up their families? This is insane. These are children of God. They're Americans. They ought to be freed to their own ends, to their own individual liberties, and slavery abolished. This was the position of the abolitionists. The abolitionists represented approximately 0.1% of the U.S. population. So that means one in every 1,000 Americans appealed to the abolitionist position. The overwhelming majority of Americans fell somewhere on the liberal or conservative side. Either slavery is okay, leave it alone, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, or the liberals who said, of course, slavery is going to exist forever, but we ought to make it a little bit nicer on these slaves. In the year 1859, one of the most famous abolitionists, John Brown, was put to death for treason. John Brown was one of these abolitionists who finally snapped. He said, I can no longer abide living in a country that endorses slavery. And he sought to seek and seize armaments from Harper's Ferry, from the armory at Harper's Ferry. He's going to distribute them to slaves because he felt that they were Americans who'd been uh, unjustly incarcerated and forced to work without pay. And then they could do with those arms what they felt best as freed men. Of course, that didn't go well uh, for him. He was branded a terrorist and killed. Uh, universally was uh, despised by both conservatives and liberals alike. He went too far. Less than two years later, in 1861, as they were raising the flag over the Union muster grounds, Washington, they sang a song. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. It took less than two years for John Brown, the radical terrorist, to be transformed into a hero of the Union cause. And such was their devotion and love for John Brown that they set the words to their new military anthem that had just been written for them by Julia Ward Howe, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. They set that to the tune of John Brown's body. And they sang that tune as they marched south to free enslaved Americans. Well, what happened? How did he go from being such an outcast to being somebody who was so celebrated that they sang his song when they marched into battle? Well, we know it was the outbreak of the Civil War. It was the moment when things had reached such a fevered pitch that there was no longer room for conservative and liberal debate. There was only the cause of slavery and the cause of freedom. It happened in a flash. Today, in our time, we have a lot of these same frustrating conversations. And today, in our time, we have those 0.1%ers out there, those abolitionists. You have people like, I would put myself in one of these camps, who believe in the radical notion that no American should be homeless. None. Zero. Absolutely not. I'm 
completely disinterested in conversations about how we ought to make homeless people's lives easier or how we ought to reduce their pain and suffering while they're homeless. I think that the solution to homelessness is quite simple. Put them in a house. That's it. You've eliminated homelessness. Like unto the abolitionists who said, I'm uninterested in bickering about how to make these, sla these slaves' lives better. I know a, a great way to make it better. End slavery. So too the abolitionists of today make these claims on society and say, we need to make a simple radical change. Another reason that I'm uninterested in the debate and the bickering is because that I know when I look at the facts on the ground that it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Most recently in my adult life, I've spent a great deal of time in two cities. I'll contrast them for you. Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids. And I'll speak plainly. Kalamazoo is run by liberals and Grand Rapids is run by conservatives. You may not want that to be the case, but that's the case. Here's what else I know. There's four times as many people in Grand Rapids as there are in Kalamazoo. Kalamazoo is about the fourth population of Grand Rapids. Here's another thing I know. There's twice as many homeless people in Kalamazoo as there are in Grand Rapids. In Grand Rapids, there are roughly 900 people who are sleeping rough, as of the last count. In Kalamazoo, there are over 1,600. But how can this be, you might say, given that Grand Rapids is run by conservatives and Kalamazoo is run by liberals? I thought that the liberals were right on the homelessness issue and not the conservatives. You say, well, lo and behold, perhaps they're both wrong. Or maybe some of you more middle path people say, well, maybe they're both right, but in different ways. I'm much less interested in the political bickering than I am in solving the problem. In other words, in the words of, I think it was Eisenhower who said, it doesn't matter who gets the credit, you can get a lot done when you don't care about that. All right. The question is less on how we position ourselves uh, against the other, against the person who is opposed to us, and more on how we cleave fast to the values, the radical values of the Bible that God tells us are important. You were, I think, all of us in this room, and I am open to being wrong about this, baptized at one point or another in our lives. As I said last week, I was baptized by Bill Allender years ago in the Sanctuary of Park Church downtown. It was a little bitty baby. When I was baptized, I took a bunch of promises. Now, it's not fair to make a baby take promises. And so what they do is they have your parents or your guardians or your godparents take those promises for you and then hold you to account for them. So that later on when you're 13, 14, 15, you can be confirmed and then say, oh yeah, those promises sound pretty good. I think I'll stick with that. And I did that. I made those promises real in my own life. One of those promises was to do what it says to do in this book. This book makes no accounting for the condition of homeless people. This book doesn't say you need to uh, only work your slaves 16 hours and then let them uh, be children of God for the other eight. It doesn't say uh, homeless people shouldn't be beat up by the, by the authorities or thrown into jail. It does make declarations, however, on how we ought to treat the poor. Isaiah says that his instructions today are for all of us. But at the end of his prophecy, he says, thus says the Lord to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations. This, thus says the Lord to the slave. Kings shall see and stand up, princes they shall prostrate themselves. Because God has chosen you. 
Isaiah has instructions of promise and hope to people who are enslaved, living in abject and deep poverty, people who are suffering. God makes a special dispensation, a special promise to the poor. Not because God doesn't care about us, but because God cares deeply for those who are suffering. Well, okay, we say. Then in that case, and in any case, when we're out there doing church stuff together, we're going to make an effort to take care of the poor and do our best, especially when the cameras are on. <laughs> That's why I was thinking in uh, election season, you always see politicians at soup kitchens uh, because the cameras are on. And then when the cameras aren't on, uh, suddenly they scatter <laughs> or they're too busy. My concern is less so that the churches that I serve publicly witness to the promises of God, but rather that they do so when nobody is watching. When I was a kid, I used to stack wood because we had a wood-burning furnace in our house, and um, I hated it. It was miserable work, especially in the winter when it was most important. And for reasons that God alone knows, I now heat my own house with a wood-burning <laughs> furnace. For those who believe that God has no sense of humor, I submit my own adult life. In fact, I was at a doctor's appointment the other day, and my doctor asked, as she always does, are you exercising, Nathan? And uh, the answer is always no. Uh, the only running I do is if I'm being chased by bees. Um, but I said for the first time, yes, I am. And she was very surprised. And she says, what in the world are you doing? I said, I'm chopping and stacking wood. She said, that's very good exercise. I said, I know, it's awful. <laughs> what a wondrous thing that we are to become our parents. <laughs> but I didn't like it was when I was a kid and I had an older brother who conspired to help me get out of my chores so that he could take me off on adventures and get into trouble. And so one year we decided that we would take these big abandoned sheets of plywood that we'd found off of some construction site and we would build this big, huge, um, like, uh, negative space. This big, like, we were going to build like a shack inside the wood pile and then stack wood around it. Because, yes, okay, some of you are getting where I'm going with this because the wood pile would look huge. And, and, but there would be no wood in there, and we would be fine. And d Dad would come out and say, if you stack the wood, we'd say, Behold, Father, yet unto your glory we have stacked many cords of lumber, like the Tower of Babel, reaching to the sky. And he said, Wow, you really did. All right, go off and go you know, hunt squirrels or whatever you want to do. And you know how this story ends. It ends in sadness, ruin, and tragedy. <laughs> it ends with two Michigan boys chopping and stacking wood in the bitter cold of February <laughs> instead of the temperate uh, season of November when they really should have stacked the wood. But this always brings me back to this question of what we do when nobody's really watching. What we do when nobody's really watching. I think for the Northerners who lived in that antebellum period, they got angry after 1851 because they had quietly been supporting or at least tacitly permitting slavery to happen because nobody was watching. Nobody was paying attention. 
It was a southern issue. It was just something that was happening in another part of the country. Of course, they were complicit in it. The economy they lived in benefited from it. They wore cotton, just as anybody else. But in 1851, when the South had the temerity to say, hey, we're going to watch. We're going to start watching you northerners. You don't help us catch our escaped slaves. We're going to throw you in jail. And then the northerners got angry because they couldn't break the rules in silence anymore. Somebody was watching. And I think that when we in this season of epiphany reflect on our baptism, we do well to remember that our promises aren't made so much to each other as they are to God. Listen to, again, these words from Paul that we just heard read to the church in, 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 uh, in Corinth. Paul gives thanks to God that, was given, that, that the church in Corinth was given the speech and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's writing to Corinth because he can't keep an eye on them. Paul'd love to be watching over that little church in Corinth. They get up to, oh, all sorts of shenanigans. If you read the letters to the Corinthians, Paul can't keep an eye on them. So he reminds them what they've been given, the teaching and wisdom of Jesus Christ. And he says, so that you're not lacking any spiritual gift. And God will strengthen you to the end. Listen to what he writes. So that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when I dipped my watch in peanut butter, nobody was watching me. I still broke my watch. When we choose to hold fast to the word of God and to do that which is good before God's sight, we're doing it not because we want to be on the right side of history, not because we want to prove the other team wrong, but because we want to prove ourselves blameless at the coming of Jesus Christ. I think that, that ought to be sufficient. Do you know a city where there's no homeless people? Mecca in Saudi Arabia. There are zero homeless people in Mecca, in the holiest city in Islam. Because it can't be tolerated. Not because they want to look good on the national scene, not because they want to have lots of fancy visitors and guests come and not see homeless people in the streets, but because they believe that God is watching. And that if there is one person sleeping rough on the streets of Mecca, the entire city is indicted for that crime. Would it be that way in the Vatican? I don't think so. I'm not sure. What I want for us is not simply to be right, not even simply to be ethical or moral or just, but to be Christians. To be Christians who choose to do the right thing, even if it requires us to take an abolitionist position, an unpopular position, not because we're going to be celebrated by the world or by people who are powerful. God says right here, the powerful of this world are going to bow before those who have been cast out, those who are homeless. But because by doing so, we'll fulfill the promises that we made at our baptism. Fulfilling the promises to God. Because at the end, those are the only ones that matter. Those really are the only ones that matter. So as we go into the world this week, I want us to be less concerned with our personal politics. We've seen in this little brief review of history that it didn't really matter a whole lot that they were liberal or conservative. 
whether they wanted what was next or what was past, but rather that they did that thing that their soul cried out for in response to the word of God, in response to the promises of God, and in response to the promises that we have made to God. This week, let's do the right thing, even when nobody's watching. And I promise if you do, it will be its own reward. That's God's promise to us. So as children of God, let's behave as such. Amen? Amen.